All right, so we are, I think, going to finish today uh, this uh, trek specifically through the Bible, looking at specific instances in a, uh, a biblical sense of what does each chapter, you know, verse, chapter, book say about worship. We've not necessarily covered everything that the Bible has to say, um, but I do think we've highlighted the uh, very important things. And we find ourselves in the midst of the book of Hebrews. We talked about Hebrews last week, which we said was uh, really the book in the Bible that probably has the most to say about a theology of worship. And um, so we were picking up there. Really, what we talked about last week was what? Anybody remember? What was the kind of the big theme in Hebrews that we talked about? This is Sunday school, so that should... Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus as our high priest and the mediator of the new covenant, uh, the better covenant than that which um, was issued in the Old Testament. And we see him as the fulfillment of the types and shadows of that which um, was given to the Israelites in the uh, Old Covenant under Moses. And so we concluded with the blood of Jesus, talking about his blood as that which not temporarily cleanses us from sin and makes us uh, temporarily able to have access to God, but which, when we are cleansed with the blood of Jesus, permanently cleanses us from sin and once and for all gives us access to God. So, uh, today, we're going to try to finish up Hebrews and talk about Revelation, because, believe it or not, Revelation actually has a lot to say. So, the book of Hebrews, in light of the priestly work of Christ to prepare the way for believers to God, issues the challenge to believers to hold fast the Christian confession and to draw near to God with confidence. See this in a um, couple places. Uh, chapter 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Likewise, in chapter 10, 19 through 23, we read, uh, Because Christ has offered a, a once-for-all sacrifice, and where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no sin, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it 
is faithful. So what then is the means that we have of, let me phrase it this way, since Jesus has prepared a way for us by his blood, what should we do? According to these passages we just read. Draw near to the throne of grace. We are to now draw near to God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. I think it's hard for us to uh, wrap our minds around the significance of what is happening here because we didn't live under the old covenant. We didn't live uh, through the priest and the the daily sacrifices. Um, I mean, there was blood everywhere. Um, All day, every day, that was the thing. Blood, blood, blood. And um, now, however, there has been blood shed once. That is our means to enter into the presence of God. We no longer need a human priest. We have the God-man. The direct approach to God with confidence is the essence of the Christian faith. A direct approach to God with confidence, it says, is the essence of the Christian faith. Our ability to come before God unimpeded, without the means of some other mediator. Now, we do come to God through a mediator. But we come to God through the mediator who is God, Jesus Christ. What does it mean then to draw near to God? What do you think? What is it what is drawing near to God? Because am I nearer to God now? Or now? Or or now? I'm up here. Is that is that drawing are we nearer to God? here in this room than we were this morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in in this case, you see that? John 6, Jesus says the Father is drawing people to himself, and so we are drawing near to God, coming near to God. In short, we could say that it means to believe the gospel and make personal appropriation of salvation. Right? 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Or 11.6 Right? Faith. Faith, we could say, is a synonym for drawing near. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I think this is a wonderful definition of faith. You know, if you're ever asked, how, do you, what's, how does the Bible define faith? Very often we say Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's very true. 
But I think the writer of the Hebrews, he fills that out more. Well, what does that mean? And then in 11.6, faith is drawing near to God, believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so, in short, the author to the Hebrews here is exhorting his readers to continue to draw on all spiritual resources available to them through Jesus Christ and not to fall away. To with their hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and even their bodies, to draw near to the Lord. Yeah, we believe God will do what he says he will do. We expect him to do what he says he will do. When we draw near to... What is something, maybe you mentioned, noticed in both these passages, what's something that is critical that we must have if we are to draw near to God? A what? A clean conscience. Our conscience must be cleansed by the assurance that the blood of Christ provides the necessary forgiveness that we need before one can worship or serve God effectively. If we, seek, if we come before God doubting that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes us acceptable in God's sight, then we cannot rightly, we're not rightly coming before the Lord. Our conscience must be cleansed, knowing that we are wicked, evil sinners, but Jesus has died for us, is necessary for this act of drawing near. So this idea of drawing near to God, of having a clean conscience. Um, If you look in, uh, so, 9.14 says, How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's an idea of purifying our conscience. Well, in 12.28, I think we have a, a helpful interpretive um, passage for understanding what this means. Um, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So what then can we say is acceptable worship? Well, it's at least gratitude for the reception of an unshakable kingdom. Christian worship is one that is motivated out of thankfulness toward God for His kingdom which cannot fail. And it expresses itself in words and actions. And he expounds upon this in chapter 13. As soon as he says this, so we can offer God, offer God acceptable worship for his unshakable kingdom that we have received. He then says, let brotherly love be genuine. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Remember those in prison. Let marriage be held in honor. Keep your life free from love and money. Remember your leaders. 
don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Obey your leaders, right? He says, if, you're, if you are offering God acceptable worship, your life is going to be, uh, is going to manifest right deeds and actions. The motivation and power for such acts is the cleansing that derives from the finished work of Christ. We can seek to perform good works as Christians because we know that our deeds are cleansed with the blood of Jesus now. That our Isaiah says our righteousness is as filthy rags, but our righteousness as it comes to us from Christ is perfection. And so I can seek to live a life pleasing to God based upon what God has done for me in Christ. Thoughts on that? Questions? Man, I'm just either really good at explaining this stuff or it's early. I don't know. So the congregational gathering in Hebrews then, right? How does the writer see the local church? If acceptable worship has to do with drawing near to God, believing He exists, He rewards those who thank Him, uh, who seek Him, thanking Him for an unshakable kingdom... How does he see the local church? This drawing near together, right? He, he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Not you individually as a person, though feel free to do so. You should. But let us as a people draw near together to God. He says that, or really he sees it as an anticipation of the ultimate eschatological future New heavens, new earth, assembly of God's people portrayed in 12, 22-24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, uh, an author says this, that they, local congregations, are an earthly manifestation of that heavenly assembly already gathered around God and Christ. The congregation meeting should be an expression of our common participation in the eschatological community gathered, cleansed, and consecrated to God by Messiah's work. There's a probably one of the the, the more well-known verses in Hebrews uh, on the issue of the local gathering is chapter 10, 24 and 5. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. 
I want to just mention something about this text for a moment. The writer here urges his audience to consider how they may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's in verse 24. And then verse 25 explains this in two clauses. They are to encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. First, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Second, they are to encourage one another all the day, uh, all the, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouragement can be given to Christians at the most basic level by not forsaking the assembly. We encourage one another just by being here, by seeing one another, by hearing one another sing, by just, hey, how's it going? Checking in. Now, we do those things at some level with each other through the week. But, the Lord's Day, and I think you, you know that. I think you've experienced that. You're here and you have your brothers and sisters in Christ here. That's better. That's good. We love that. We're encouraged by that. And so while that's one way in which we encourage one another, that's not the only way. Christians gather not merely to receive. We're not coming here as mere uh, spiritual um, consumers where we want to just come and receive everything. We put our, you know, we drop our token in the offering plate and now I... Just get everyone to serve me, right? We come to give. So we gather together. We, our focus ought to be on the promises of God, the encouragement of the gospel, and what it can bring for us in godly living in the present life. We're to encourage and push one another towards that kind of life where we are not living for ourselves, not living upon ourselves, but we're living for God and we're living for the good of others and we're living upon God. And we can do that here. We do it perhaps primarily, we'd say, through the preached word, but in just in our conversations and our songs and our prayers and our Sunday school classes in our, if I didn't say it, our conversations before and after, we help one another look toward heaven. And we draw near to God together. Absolutely. We don't shrink back in fear. First John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. For fear only thinks of punishment. And so in the passage that we've read in chapter 10, 23 through 24, we have three exhortations here. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for uh, he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to serve one another up to love and good works. So we are to draw near to God. We are to hold fast our confession. And we are to encourage one another in the faith. 
that is what you could say the writer of the Hebrews is summing up as the, the aim of the local gathering. Those three things. The emphasis here, then, is that our approach to God is through Jesus Christ, the heavenly sanctuary. In 19 through 22, or through 21, just before that, right, Jesus has made a way, a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so, unlike the Old Testament, where the Israelites had to come to God through the mediator of a priest year after year, different priest year after year, um, who died, who had to cleanse themselves. Jesus makes all the provisions necessary for us, and now we enter into the Holy of Holies through His body, which is the heavenly sanctuary, and we draw near, hold our confession unswervingly and we spur one another on to love and good deeds and so the book of Hebrews takes the themes of the Old Testament concerning worship and interprets them through the the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the corporate gathering Jesus has bought us certain access to God and this certain access says one author To God in the present is the guarantee of literal participation in the coming kingdom or city of God. We look forward to the abiding city, Hebrews tells us, chapter 12. The service pleasing in God under the new covenant is the obedience offered through Jesus Christ, motivated by gratitude for all that he has achieved on our behalf. So that's Hebrews. Dots? Sweet. All right. Revelation then. God's revelation to John is perhaps a surprisingly important book for a biblical study of the theme of worship. The concept of worship is pervasive throughout the book. And the term, uh, the main Greek term used for worship occurs 24 times. And it generally refers to giving homage to the living and true God by heavenly beings and redeemed sinners. So some examples of that. Revelation 4, verse 10. The 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Or in 5.14, And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Or chapter 7 in verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. 11, 1. 
Then I was given a rod, like a, me- uh, a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Or in verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 14.7 And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 15.4 Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Just a couple more. 19.4 And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And the throne came And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear Him, small and great. And verse 10, Then I fell down at His feet to worship Him, that is the angel. But He said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then lastly, in 22, verse 9, Again, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, he falls down to worship an angel. He says, don't do that. I am your servant. Worship God. And so, I read you all of those to belabor the point. <laughs> worship is an incredibly constant and pervasive theme in this book. Just in case you didn't believe me when I said it earlier. I hope you do now. And so... Spoiler alert, we have about 15 minutes and so maybe less and we're not going to get into the ins and outs of Revelation, obviously. But basically what I want to do in the few minutes we have left is just contrast. We've set this up in our minds, we can explore it more later, but um, a major emphasis in the book is the difference between true worship and false worship. Within the context of the first century, the church was in conflict with the dominating cultural and religious ideals of the Greco-Roman world. And so John is warning his audience of the danger of assimilation and compromise. So, not complete agreement, but a lot of agreement is that the book of Revelation is aimed largely at encouraging the people of God in the first century to endure with patience under the growing persecution that they were experiencing under the Roman Empire. For one, there was the challenge of emperor worship. Now, this wasn't the case from the beginning. It kind of developed over time. Beginning with Julius Caesar and really culminating with Domitian was this sense that the Roman emperors had that they were 
they were increasingly accustomed to receiving divine honors in terms of sacrifice, offerings, incense, processions, priesthood, hymns, and acclamations. And I mentioned Domitian. By the time of Domitian, emperor worship had become the one religion of universal obligation in Asia. So, Revelation, written either before 70 AD or sometime in the 90s, um, is either preparing the people for this increased opposition to the worship of the one true living God, or is written right in the middle of it. Domitian reigned from about 81 AD to 96. So, um, Revelation was either written about 10 years, a little more than 10 years before he came to power, or right in the middle of his Right. And so, uh, from John's point of view, to engage in emperor worship is to worship the beast coming out of the sea that he mentions in chapter 13 and verse 1. And so, uh, this beast worship was ultimately to give allegiance to Satan. And in 13, verse 15, we read that those who will not worship the beast and its image will experience persecution. And we see that play out um, explicitly in the life of the early church. So according to John, there are basically two groups within humanity. Those who worship the dragon and the beast and those who worship God and the lamb. The contrast between these two groups groups reaches a climax at the end of the book. In chapter 21, 5 through 8, we read, And he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the, uh, I will give from the spring of water... Spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So you have one group of people there, those who conquer, who are thirsty, who are children of God. And then you have, in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second Death, And so worship, according to Revelation, brings with it demand to refuse to conform to social and economic political pressures to compromise in culture. For the early church, in the face of such conflicting worldviews, they could not simply worship God in private but had to consider the social implications of their Christian commitment. Does that not ring in our hearts for us today? We really don't have the option, less and less anyways, of simply being closet Christians. We don't want to be closet Christians. But the option is not even there. That, um, or even 
a Christian who a person who professes to be a Christian in public but otherwise is generally left alone about it. Just yesterday, our Supreme Court obliterated the Constitution and the rule of law. Rule, uh, not yesterday, the day before, right? Um, ruling that every state is required to recognize the civil unions of two men or two women as marriage. And not only that, because that's bad enough, that's one thing. But not only that, but anyone who dares to speak out against the profanation of marriage in our midst is vilified and decried as a bigot and a small-minded, backwoods, idiot moron. They're throwing mean words at us now. How long before they're throwing us in jail? Businesses are shut down, people are fired, churches are splitting and being closed. Although the situation in Revelation is very specific, and John is addressing particular issues in the first century, I don't want to deny that, but it seems appropriate that we can draw parallels between them and their experience, and what we see coming down the pike for us, and what other brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced the world over since the creation of the church. For the last 2,000 years, uh, the world, hell, has been raging against the church. But Jesus said, gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Whether hell is... Being offensive or defensive, in the end, God wins. So at some level, we can say that any time the government opposes Christianity, and we really didn't read a whole lot of it, but if you read those chapters, you know, chapter 12 and 13, um, you really see this uh, oppression, um, this raging of the dragon and the beast. Anytime we see the government opposing Christianity with its own ideology and power, is this not the dragon raising his head in an effort to devour God's people? Acceptable worship, then, involved acknowledging and accepting God's claim for exclusive devotion and loyalty by rejecting every alternative. In the marketplace, in politics, in the field of education or the arts, the Christian is constantly challenged to make the decisive choice for God that Jesus himself made when he was tested so forcefully in the wilderness. That was a quote from David Peterson. And so there's this contrast worship of worshiping the dragon And the beast and those who will not because they worship the lamb. But what about the heavenly realm? Because most of those passages where we read worship earlier, was it wasn't all of the ones that are there, but the ones we did, it was the four living elders and it's in heaven. And what does he have to say about that? There are just a few things that I want to draw our attention to there and we'll be wrapping up. 
First, Revelation calls us to worship God as creator. We saw that in chapter 4, 8 through 10. Specifically, uh, 8 through 11, we see where he says in verse 11, To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All rule and authority owes its existence to God. And namely, Jesus Christ, right? Colossians 1, 15 through 21. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Things visible and invisible, whether rulers or authorities, dominions, powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, or Romans 11. That all things are to and through and for God. And so we ought to worship God as creator. Second, Revelation calls us to worship God as redeemer. In verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, they sing this new song to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so, interestingly enough here, very, very similar, if not identical language, is used in chapter 5 of the Lamb that we saw in chapter 4 of God. John, in his revelation, and the Elders and living creatures in heaven are not shy to attribute deity to Jesus Christ. We are forbidden. We saw two passages where an angel forbids John to worship him. But we are commanded to worship God alone. And here they worship the Lamb. Third, then, there's the hope of fulfillment in the Old Testament that we see in Revelation. Uh, maybe write these down, but um, in Re- we'll, we'll look in Revelation 15, but we won't be able to go back to it. Um, Revelation 15, 3 through 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy. All nations will come and worship you, for you have righteous acts, for your, as your, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This was the great hope of the Old Testament, that not just Jews, but all nations would come. In chapter 19, we see the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt together and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, has granted uh, her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And uh, that, I think, is a reference to Isaiah 25, 6 and 8, where God talks about setting a feast and banquet for all peoples. And then in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it talks about the tree of life and its leaves being for the healing of the nations. Thirdly and lastly, we want... Not thirdly and lastly. I don't know why that says thirdly. Whatever. Uh, Last thing I want to say... We need to affirm the victory of God. 
this school year, I had some students who were doing a project in their Bible class, and they came up to me and asked me some questions like, what's the first thing you think about different books of the Bible or something? And one of them was Revelation. And the first thing that came to mind was God wins. Ultimately, the point of the book of Revelation is that God wins. In the end, God wins. He is the victorious king, and through his life, death, and resurrection, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, he has redeemed the people for himself by his spirit to reign with him for all eternity. So come what may. Let come what may. God is enthroned in the heavens. He rules in wisdom, justice, and grace. He is the king of kings. He is to be worshipped and revered now and forever as such. So brothers, sisters, do not fear the world, even though the world hates you. And it does. Jesus says, it hates you, it hated me. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, for this word, Revelation. What a a wonderful book, what a confusing book at times, because we have such finite, feeble minds. I pray, God, that you would give us understanding, and that you would, through my own inadequacies, my own inabilities, my own failings, that your word would ring out in our ears and our hearts, that your word would go out like a hammer with fire, and it would break our hard hearts to pieces when they're hard, and it would bind up our broken hearts when they're broken, and we would be given strength and courage and faith and love and zeal for you, for your Son, for your Spirit, for your people. So we gather now to worship you. I pray, God, teach us, help us to see your glory from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.